Amen. Good morning. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Adam. I was here with you in April. I was not the executive director of the factory in that moment. I didn't even have a, I didn't even submit an application. I didn't even put my name into that yet. As a matter of fact, when I agreed to preach today, I still wasn't the executive director. I was in process, and I think Tim knew that. Um, so I'm not sure if Tim was up to something, thinking maybe I'm going to get the job, and this would kind of be my first official thing to do with churches as the executive director. Um, but I am thrilled to be here. Before I jump into my message, I just want to take the opportunity to say thank you to Grace Point, to you guys, those of you who call this place home. Um, when you see Katie standing up here on the stage, I was on Tuesday night at the United Way celebration and all the funding that goes out. And it was kind of a subculture to me. I was a pastor previously, and what I was just blown away by, Katie was actually um, up on the screen. She was there and telling her story of what she does. And here's what's special about this place. When churches have the opportunity to hire staff, they often think internal. What do we need to do this better, to do our office stuff better, to do us better? And this church, you guys risk a lot and put your neck out in the line and say, what can we do in our community? So to have Katie here, um, I actually heard of you on an Associated Press article, uh, what was that, like three years ago or so, when I first, that's how I kind of met Katie uh, informally is through that article. So thank you guys for the difference that you're making. Now that I'm in the role that I'm in, I see the impact that this church makes all the more uh, there at the factory. So thank you so much for um, stepping in and, and risking in the way that you do. It's very courageous. Um, well, that said, here's where I want to go this morning. Um, when I had told my kids I'm the executive director of the factory, one of my children said to me, well, what does that mean? What do you do? Some of you may ask that. Well, what does that mean? What does an executive director do? So like when you hear someone says to you, I'm a nurse. Okay, I kind of know what a nurse does. I'm a dentist. I kind of know what dentists do. I am a landscaper. I am a waitress. You kind of get your head around, I know what you do. I'm a teacher. Executive director, what is that? So I sat down and started telling my um, kids, and I watched this particular child kind of glaze over because I could see it wasn't connecting fully. Because when you start talking about leadership and stuff around that, it gets kind of squishy. Like, what do you do with your 40 to 50 hours all week? Do you like sit in an office and send emails? Or like, what do you do? So I want to kind of share a little bit what I do. I'm passionate about it. I'm a leader. I love leading, um, and leaders, really, it's about influence. It's about moving people together as a group, serving others towards a common good. And to do that well, there's these, if you, any of you get around leadership, you'll hear this phrase, you'll hear someone talk about mission or vision. There's a third component that winds my clock, and I want to talk about it because I think it's important for us here. It's values. I think values as a leader are far more important than what you, your vision and your mission. I think it's true for you, too. Values determine your behavior. Let me give you an example in my own life. When we were newly married, um, I graduated college. We're married before I graduated. We head up to this, uh, this job that I was so excited to be a part of. It was in Mifflin County, Pennsylvania. I was an associate pastor. We're living in the area where I kind of grew up going on vacation as a kid. My grandfather had a hunting cabin in this region. So I kind of knew the area. And the church that I, it was so crazy, the church that I ended up pastoring in was the church that we would attend as a family 
on when we would be there over the weekend. So this kind of felt like this nostalgic, romantic, this is so cool. It's a beautiful area. It's a rural area. Um, so I step into this role. So there's these state parks all around that area. So uh, we, have, uh, we have four kids now. At the time, we had a boy, Luke, our oldest, and we had a second boy, Zach. He's our second. And Zach was like a year and a half, toddlerish age. And my wife was pregnant. This was in the spring, early summer. Was pregnant with our third, who would then be our daughter. They're here with me. Uh, quite a cool. They moved up a few rows. Let me throw a little plug out for the front. They're padded seats. <laughs> We, we were here in April when we sat back there, and I kind of said, you know what? I'm going to move up next time we're here. So anyway, they're up here. I say hi to them later. Um, they love when I talk about them from the stage, by the way. They really get excited. So my wife is pregnant with our third. Um, so she, Eden is her name. She's due in uh, late July, early August. And so I'm like, I had this idea. Let's go to this place and see there's this, this cool state park where they have birds of prey, and you can, our kids can go see bald eagles and falcons and all these amazing birds. Then there's these beautiful groomed trails that we can hike on, and it comes down around a lake, and then we can get down around this lake, and we can go out on a rowboat. So my wife said, that sounds cool. Like, are you sure? Like, you know, she's pregnant. I'm like, yes, this will work. I mean, she's like, well, can I wear flip-flops? I'm like, these, pa- these, tra- these trails are groomed. They're beautiful. They're well-maintained. We could even take the stroller for Zach. So we get out there. We look at the birds. We start walking down the trail. We get down into the trail a little bit, and there's this, the yellow caution tape blocking off the one trail with a diversion off to the left. And we look at it, and we think, oh, they're doing work on this, the original trail. Oh, no big deal. We'll, we'll continue this way. We head down around, and we start getting into what would not be described as a groomed trail. This trail was kind of at the headwaters of the lake. It was swampy. It was muddy. It was nasty. There were bugs. There, the clouds are rolling in because there's a storm coming. And my wife looks at me, and she says, sweetie, are you sure we should keep going? What did I say to her? Of course we should. <laughs> why wouldn't we keep going, right? I mean, why would I turn around and go back? Now, what is driving my behavior? It's my value. And a lot of times we don't even name them. We don't even know they're there. So I have this value that's, that's, I've learned to name it now because it can get in the way of some productive things. My value at time is I'm a person of my word. I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. And we, I get tunnel vision and I focus in and we are going to hit that target. And that target is this romantic, I'm a romantic to the core. I'm an idealist. That target is getting around to the backside of this lake and going out as our family on this beautiful lake on this rowboat. That is what we're about. So I'm like, we can do this. So we get all the way down through and it's, it's I could, I should have been picking up. I've learned, I've learned a lot. Um, I've learned to pay attention to some cues that my wife is giving. I wasn't quite as adept at that in the moment. Uh, So we're getting down, and my wife's kind of a little more quiet. I can tell she's kind of absorbing the frustration of this, and she's pregnant. We're walking in mud. We get down to the lake, and we go up to rent our canoe or our rowboat, and guess what? They're closed. (laughs) We turn around to come back, and guess what happens? Those storm clouds rolled in. Our entire walk back, or most of it, was in the rain with a little boy in a stroller, mud all over the path. My wife is largely pregnant, and she's got flip-flops on her feet to walk in nice, groomed trails. Now, <laughs> values are important. And a lot of times, what drive, they drive our behavior, and a lot of times, we value things. We don't even know we value. So what I'm going to do is throw a question out to you this morning. We're going to look at the scriptures here. 
I want to imagine, if you will, for me, what is the number one value of a Christ follower? Or what should be? What is the thing that should drive Christians? What is the thing? So picture, picture if you will, a target. Uh, hopefully some of you in the back, I bought really big markers, but I don't know if hopefully you back can kind of picture this. So picture a target. And your goal is to hit the center. This thing right here, that's your goal. That's the value. What is this thing for a Christian? What is the number one value of a Christ follower? Do you have an idea in your head? What is it? Now, why it's important to talk about this is because values compete. When I worked at Super Value Food Distribution, they were really big on the bottom line, and they named that. I applaud companies that do that. A lot of times companies don't say, one of the things we value is productivity and, and finances. We want to make money. A lot of times companies kind of avoid that, and it's like this, well, aren't, why are we here? We want to make money. But they'd also say, we value safety. Now, as an order selector, that's what I was a part of, and I was part of training this workforce, we would say, okay, at times you're put in a situation where to be productive could actually put you at risk. And so the company would say, we're about productivity, but we're also about safety, But those values at times run into one another, and you can't have them both. So it's why it's important to kind of work through an exercise like this and say, okay, we can throw all kinds of things up here. Like, what are some values you might put up here that you might even put in the middle, right? We could say, well, prayer. We're a people of faith. We're going to pray. Some of you are going to put up here holiness, right? Holiness. And some of you may even put that right in the middle of your target obedience and living holy and living set apart. We live, we live here in a culture in Lancaster County that that is a really big deal and very important. Some of you are going to say, well, Adam, no, 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 no. Actually, I'm going to put love up here, loving others. That is the value that should drive Christianity. How about loving others? How about loving God, living for the glory of God? How about giving? How about evangelism? How about, how about you just continue to go down the list of values, things that we say as a Christ follower, that is what we're about. And then which is the one that should drive right here? So get the one in your head, maybe write it down on a paper. Don't need to show anyone in your notes there. But turn with me, if you will, to 2 Samuel. Now, last time I was here, I learned not all the Pew Bibles have the same page number. There are little different editions here. So I will do my best to help those of you who are brand new to the Bible. What I would recommend, I still do this at times, go to the very front of your Bible, you'll see this thing called the table of contents. Second Samuel's like up near the kind of the first quarter of the Bible. For those of you new to the Bible, let me kind of bring you up to speed. Um, Second Samuel is a historical book, like we're going to go to history class this morning. You have a books around it. You have First Samuel, then you have Second Samuel, and then after it, you see these books called Chronicles, First Chronicles and Second Chronicles. So what's happening? This is these are historical narrative. Uh, the nation of Israel didn't have a king; they were ruled by judges, and they had a prophet, someone who heard from God. and And the nation looks around and they say, "We want a king, like all the other nations." So God says, "Okay, I'll give you a king." Saul is that king, and this is the history of Saul's ruler, ruling. Saul then moves on, that's in 1 Samuel, and then it shifts to this guy named David. Some of you may have heard of David. David and, David and who? Some of you know him. David, what does he do? Who does he slay? Goliath, right? That's where a lot of people, even if you're not in the 
church regularly. We even still hear David and Goliath-type stories referenced if you watch sports or, or arts and other stuff. So David steps onto the scene. So the rest of 1 Samuel and all of 2 Samuel is just simply the history kind of written down for us to know this was David's life. We're in 2 Samuel 22. If you actually look at chapter 23... You'll notice 23, if, if you, you have your NIV Bibles there, the NIV gives these headings to the chapters, and the NIV labels chapter 23 as what? What's it say there? The last words of who? So we're at the very end of David's life. So picture, picture David is in hospice, and hospice sends the message out, hey, it's time to gather because your dad, your grandfather, your, your brother, he's going to pass away. So they all gather around. And if you look at chapter 22, where we're going to look, you notice it's, it's written like in a poem. It's, it's, it has all broken up. It's not this nice, columned writing. That's because it's a song. It's poetry. It's actually, if you, if you know the Bible, it's actually Psalm 18. Now, what's important about this, Psalm 18, if you turn to Psalm 18, it actually says, and in the heading of it, it says, this is the psalm that David sang and probably wrote when he escaped from Saul, the king who was trying to kill him. So this song doesn't really belong at the end of his life. It actually happened at the front of his life. But here he is at the end of his life singing this song. It's at the very end of his life. His family's gathered around his bedside. He's about ready to give his final words, and he breaks into song. Some of you have been here, Right? I've heard stories, powerful stories, of you gathering with your loved ones, and they begin to hold hands, and you begin to sing a song that meant something to you, that identifies your life, that says, this is who I am, and peace kind of sets into the room. Look at this song. I want to just look at a few verses of this. Look at verse 21. And I think what you're going to see is what pops right here is fascinating. First time I engaged this chapter, I grew up in a Christian home. The church I went to, my grandfather was one of the founding members of. I went to that Christian school till eighth grade. And what I would have put in the center at, that, at the point in my life when I read this, I shared last time there was a point in my life where I attempted suicide. I then got to get my life kind of trying to put back together and I go off to a Bible school. And at the Bible school is when I read through the Bible for the very first time. And that's when I encountered this verse. But up until that point, I understood the number one value of a Christian, of a Christ follower, would have been this word right here, holiness. A Christ follower is to live set apart. I mentioned last time, that's why my teachers took my vanilla ice and MC Hammer tapes from me, because they weren't set apart. They weren't holy music. I thought they were, but they, that'll date me a little bit. Some of, I had a Walkman, too. I think I mentioned that last time. Some of you don't even know what a Walkman is. You're like, a Walkman? What is a Walkman? So I come reading this section, and something jumped off the pages. Look at verse 21. David's singing this song. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. Verse 22, for I have kept the ways of the Lord. Now, again, I'm going to read this, but he's actually singing it. So picture this kind of put to music. For I've kept the ways of the Lord. I have not done evil by turning from my God. All his laws are before me. So some of you are going, yeah, see, it's holiness. Adam, it's obedience. That's, that's the goal of the Christian life. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. Verse 24, I have been blameless before him. Now, look at this next phrase. And have kept 
myself from what? What does it say? Sin. Is there anyone in this room who can say, you have never sinned? Anyone? If you put your hand up, I got a really good mental institution I can recommend. Really good counselor. Right? Psychopaths. Unhealthy people say things like this. Not only that, when you think about David's life, some of you know David's life, right? Some of you know his story. This is at the end of his life, he's singing this, but think back through his life. What are some of the things that he's done? The story that pops in most of our minds is with a, young, with a woman named Bathsheba. The story unfolds itself in 1 Samuel, and David, is, it, it, the, the text opens up and says he should have been out at war. It's a time of year when kings are out at war. So remember that value I had that drove my wife through that hike that she just loved and we had a good discussion about later? It was because I'm responsible. I'm going to be a person of my word. I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. David was shirking that value. He should have been out at war, and he wasn't. While his men are out at war, their wives are hanging home alone, lonely. And he's up on top of his roof one day, and he's looking out over his kingdom, and he sees a good-looking girl. So he calls one of his servants, and he says, hey, who's that down there? And then the servant, when you read the text, it's so fascinating. He, the, the servant says, that is Bathsheba, the wife of, in other words, David, hands off. It's not yours. David says, well, I get that, but bring her to me. So she's brought to David, and they spend the night. Some scholars actually say he likely raped her because you don't say no to the king. The text doesn't say that. We don't know. That's conjecture. You're writing in, but, but they spend the night together. Word comes back to David in the following days, hey, David, I'm pregnant. So he's already committed adultery. Now he's like, oh, shoot, she's pregnant. What do I do? Some of you have been here, right? What do you do? The panic, the anxiety, this, we can't have a baby now. This can't be. What, what a, and so he begins, his mind goes, he's like, I got to solve this. So he's like, I know, I know, I know, I know. I'll bring her husband home. Some of you know this story, right? I'll bring her husband home and say, and so he does that. He brings the husband home and he says, man, you've been such a faithful leader in our army. Thank you for serving me. You need a break. You need vacation. You need to go to Barbados. <laughs> He's preaching this morning. I didn't know that. I have to tell you what. I got to talk to Tim when he gets back. So he says, instead of Barbados, why don't you just go home and spend the, spend the night with your wife? See what he's trying to do? He goes, no, 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 no. My value is to be responsible to what I've been called to do. And I should be out with my men. And I'm here to serve you, David. He sleeps at the door of the palace. David panics. He's like, oh my goodness, dude, your wife is good looking. Go home and be with her. So he brings him in the next night and gets him flat out drunk. And says, well, I'm going to get him drunk. Now he'll certainly not be thinking straight. He'll give up this value that he's holding, and he'll go be with his wife. He doesn't. David says, okay, what am I going to do? He writes a letter out, folds the letter up, seals it shut, hands it to him, and says, hey, when you get back out to the battlefield, give this to the general. 
The general unopened, opens a letter up and begins to read the letter, and the letter actually says, I mean, I can picture the generals kind of looking up like, what is this? The guy who carried the letter out, the letter says, send him out to the front lines, and when the battle gets intense, pull back from him. In other words, what is David asking to be done? He hired a hitman. It happens, the guy's murdered. So now David's committed adultery. He's been for a, a part of all kinds of manipulation. He's lying, and now he murders. Okay, you could go on. That's just one of David's stories. You could look at other David. The kings are told, do not multiply wives. See, one of the things that happened back in the days, they'd have these peace treaties with other nations, and to make sure that they weren't going to attack one another, the, the kings would give off their daughters to the other king to assure that, hey, now that my daughter's here, I, we can, you can kind of be assured I'm not going to come attack you because I don't want to harm my daughter. So God said, I don't want anything to do with that. You do not multiply wives. You live set apart from all the other lands. David didn't listen. He had multiple wives, and he had kids to all these different wives. And then in the middle of all that, he made a mess of his family. There's a daughter whose stepbrother rapes her. Word gets to David. This is all in the scriptures. This would be a rated R story, I promise you, if this would play itself out in Hollywood. The word gets to David. This is what's happened with your kids. David does nothing. So guess what happens? Her brother murders the stepbrother. And then all, oh, it just breaks loose. It's a mess. David almost loses his kingdom over it. So come back to 2 Samuel, verse 24. I have been blameless before him and have kept myself from sin. Now, the first time I read this, I said, is this David's ploy? You ever get to a funeral? I was at a funeral one time. The guy had a drunken car accident. Everyone knew it. Everyone knew it. Parading up on the platform are person after person telling stories that were not in line with this individual's life. You ever been there? So you're thinking, well, that's what this is. David is just like a, a PR genius, and he's like pulling everyone together and saying, listen, I'm really a good guy. Is that what it is? I'm going to say no. Look at the next verse. The way the NIV, I love the NIV's wording of this next verse. All the verses kind of give this emphasis. The NIV just, just says something really powerful. Verse 25, the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in what? In what? Turn to the person beside you. I love interaction. Just say in his sight. Some of you guys didn't do it. <laughs> Some of you guys are going, that's really cheesy. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to sit here and look at you and pretend I don't. Good. Turn to them and say, in his sight. See, that's much. There you go. Some of you are still holding back. I, I, you're probably a leader. You're like, I'm not following this guy. I'm going to do my own thing. So in his sight. Now, when I read this for the very first time, something came alive to me. David, probably more than anyone else in all of the Scripture, and the reason I say this is because twice, by two different biblical authors, David is called and referenced a man after God's own heart. No one else in the Scriptures is given this title. And it's always puzzled me, what does that mean? 
What does that mean to be a man after God's own heart? Well, I think David, more than anyone else, understood what it was to live by faith. This bullseye right here is not holiness, is not to live to the glory of God, love God, love others. This bullseye right here is the word, you could put a couple words here, grace, forgiveness. You could put here faith. That is what marks the Christian life is unique from all other religions. And David gets it. David understood if you wrote a Psalm 51, it's the psalm that he sang after he was confronted with his sin with Bathsheba. He confesses that sin and he's a broken man. And he walks away from that song knowing that he is forgiven. And I think he understands something most of us don't grasp. God now looks at him and when God sees him, he sees him what? Forgiven. See, what ends up happening when I put holiness right here in the middle, I got really busy working hard. I'm going to go out and obey the rules. I'm going to make it happen. And what I'm really doing is I'm trying to make God happy. I want to satisfy God. But do I make God happy by my behavior? Do I? Hebrews 11.6. Write it down and read it this week. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And then the verse goes on to say, you need, your faith is believing that God exists, that he is who he says he is, and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Wow. I can't satisfy God by working really hard. It's not going to happen. That's not the Christian message. You guys have been in a series over the last couple weeks talking about that very thing. Trusting God one of the hardest things to do, especially when that trust in him is related to me because I know how messed up I am. I know the hurt that I've caused other people. I know the hurt that I've caused my kids. I know the sin that I've committed against my wife, people that I love and care for. I know the sin I've, I've committed against other leaders I've led with. No one knows the darkness of my heart better than me. No one does. And it's scary to look in at times. And it's really hard then to sit down and be brokenhearted and say to God, God, I know, I know because of my faith in the person of Jesus Christ, I am considered righteous because you have forgiven me and I trust you. I'm going to take you at your word and believe you. That is really hard to do. I would say trust is that rare and priceless treasure that wins us the affection of our Heavenly Father. 1 John chapter 5, I referenced it last time I was here. It's kind of my life verse, if you will. It says this, this is love for God to obey his commandments. And you see, that's the holiness. If I love God, I'm going to obey. You can't get away from that. If you're not obeying God, you don't love God. The scriptures are very clear in that. But the passage continues, this is love for God to obey his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, I don't know about you, but my Christian existence, I can't always say that. Oh God, you want me to give 10% of my money away? I'm not sure I can even pay my bills this month. Oh God, you want me to love the poor, the orphan and the widow? 
God, no, no, see God, no, I don't know. God, prayer? On a daily, regular basis? When I'm running late, I got to get some things done? I don't know, am I alone in this or you guys relate to this? It can be a real burden at times. So it says, this is love for God to obey his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. And then comes the bullseye. This is the victory that has overcome the world. This is what's going to help you do this. Faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Faith in the person of Jesus Christ. We live by faith. I stand in this value that I hold on to as I am forgiven. Now, this puts you at odds with religious people. This puts you at odds with the world. We hate the message of it's not about you. We as human beings love to be in control. Most of your existence masks the control that you, I mean, that you really don't have. I mean, you set your alarm this morning. You chose that. You chose that awful ringtone, whoever that was. <laughs> Sorry about that. I would alter that ringtone. You chose what to eat for breakfast. You likely chose what to wear, or your wife maybe did it for you. You chose what car to purchase. You chose the route to get here this morning. We live life thinking we're in control. We can get it done. We live in the Northeast. The Puritan work ethic is rich and it is deep. Pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. I'm in control. I'm a product of my choices. That's what we say. We hate hearing, Adam, you got to die to self. It's really not about your work. It's really not about what you do. It's about trusting someone far bigger than you. We hate it. Religious people hate it. No, 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 no. So what I would hear all the time as a pastor, when I would, this was the central, I wanted this to be the stake that I drove in the ground as a pastor. Every time I spoke, I wanted the message of Jesus and the gospel message, what we call it, the good news, to be central. And I'd hear this all the time. But Adam, 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 you're giving people a license to what? Some of you have heard this. To sin. And here's what I'd say back. I learned this. I didn't say, I, over the years, I figured this out. I'd say, no, 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 that's ridiculous. People who tell me that, what they have done is they've shifted the grace to be a theological construct that we teach. But grace isn't a theological construct that we teach. Grace is a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. Same as my wife is a person. Her name is Tanya. Tanya is not a construct that we teach and we study and we learn about. Now, I've studied my wife a lot to, to learn how to love her. I've done a lot of... So studying's not bad, but the Christian life isn't about educating ourselves in our minds with a theological truth and construct. It's about loving a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. And it's about receiving his grace. It's about allowing ourselves to be broken and to name reality. I am a sinner. There's none righteous, no, not one, the scriptures say. And I can't make myself acceptable before God. Only he can do that for me. End of story. David got that more than anyone else, I believe, in the scriptures. He was a bit bipolar. <laughs> when you read him, you're like, this dude was messed up. He was messy. He did some awful things. He was a terrible father. At times, not a real good leader. But he understood this bullseye. 
to be unforgiven by the grace and the mercy of a loving God in heaven. Now, here's the cool thing, and this is where I'll end. The beauty of this is everything else you might have put on your target happens if you keep the center, that grace and mercy of God. Do you know why? Final story I'll tell, and then I'll sit down. I heard Brene Brown say this. I was at a conference one time. Brene Brown was there. I don't think Brene Brown, I don't know. I shouldn't say that. I don't know if Brene Brown is even a Christ follower. Some of you know Brene Brown. She's a sociologist. Uh, she teaches at the University of Houston. She's written all kinds of books. Oprah loves her. She's on, been on Oprah, so you may have seen her there if you watch Oprah at all. Um, Brene Brown um, has been a, a voice for, uh, she really pushes into the whole area of judgment and, and um, shame and really talks about that. Well, Brene Brown was at this conference one time. I, again, I don't know if she's Christ follower or not, but here's what she said. Until we can receive with an open heart, we are never really giving with an open heart. When we attach judgment to receiving help, we knowingly or unknowingly attach judgment to giving help. Most of us in this room hate to be needy. We hate it. We don't want to be that needy friend that dominates the conversation and makes, I mean, I don't want to be that needy person. We don't want to receive help. I don't need a meal from you. I don't need you to come do this. And we, we judge it because it means I'm weak. Well, see, when I judge myself in that way, I'm then judging you when I'm offering you help. Hear what Brene's saying? Jesus talks, I love this because I think Brene hits the heart of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, final story I'll tell, then um, I'll sit down. Some of you are going, thank you. My kids are saying thank you, I promise you that. <laughs> They're smiling at me. Right? <laughs> so uh, Jesus has this story, it's found in Luke chapter 7. He's in a religious leader's house, his name is Simon. A woman shows up in this scene and starts like at Jesus' feet. She's taking her hair and wiping his feet, cleaning his feet. And, and the religious leaders are kind of sitting over here. They're like, oh my word, he's really not the son of God. Because if he were the son of God, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. Now, scholars try and conjecture what this, who she was and what she was doing. And some will list her as a prostitute. The text doesn't say. All it says is she was a reputable sinner. She was known in town as not the kind of girl you want your boys to marry. She was someone you avoided, someone you stayed away from. And here she is at Jesus' feet, weeping and touching him, a massive violation of the law. Jesus hears him and he says, guys, let me tell you a story. Imagine yourself as someone who received a loan for $1,000. And that banker comes to you and says, guess what? Man, I hit it rich. I'm doing really good. I'm feeling generous. I'm going to excuse your loan. What would you think of that banker? Would you like him? Would you give him a high five? Send him a thank you note? And you'd probably move on with life. He says, but there's another guy who had a million-dollar loan. The banker's like the owner of uh, Amazon, and he's worth billions, right? And he says, hey, I, what's a million dollars to me? I'm feeling good today. I'm feeling generous. I'm going to excuse your debt. How would you feel towards that guy? Would you maybe dance? Even if you don't, I can't dance at all. But I'd probably dance in that moment. I would be exuberant. I would be excited. 
I wouldn't write a thank you note. I'd buy him a really nice bottle of wine and send it off to him. I'd do anything I could to serve him, to say thank you. So obviously when Jesus looks at him and says, so tell me, guys, which one would you love more? They know the answer. So he just says, here, guys, here's how it works. He who has been forgiven much, some of you know the phrase, what's the rest of it say? Loves much. That's why I don't put love God and love people in the center. He who has been forgiven much naturally loves much. It's the heart of Christianity. That's what sets us apart from all other world religions. Is that what I have in a relationship with God is not up to me. And it's not just how I become a Christian, it's how I live every day as a Christ follower in faith that I am who God says that I am. I'm going to drive it in my heart every day. I am who God says that I am. I'm forgiven because I've accepted his grace. I'm his child or you're his daughter. It's who I am. And out of that, that heart comes this gratitude that then moves out and accomplishes all these other things. But so often what we do is we want to turn this thing around and it doesn't work. It creates angry, tired, frustrated, joyless people. Some of you know some Christians like that, right? You're like, man, did they eat lemons for breakfast? They just are miserable. That's why Christians are defined by joy. Let me pray for you. Here's the question I want you to think about this week. I always ask, so what's the big idea? What, what, what do I want you to take home? Maybe write a question down and meditate on it this week. The question is this. What does God think about you and feel about you right now? So if God's going to tap you in the shoulder and say, let's go to lunch when we're done here. Let's head over to Miller's or let's head, I don't know, are they open on Sunday? Does anyone know? Yes, sure. Let's go to Miller's. 11.30. See, so you can go, right? Do I have more time to preach then too? It's 11.08. I got some more time. So you're going to go to Miller's and God's going to sit across from you. What is he going to say to you about how he feels about you? Now, some of you are going to say, well, he's going to tell me he's disappointed. Be honest about it. A lot of days, you know how I answer the question, unfortunately? Well, he loves me because he has to. I mean, that's his nature, but he doesn't really like me. He wouldn't really choose me to hang out with. He doesn't really enjoy me. Some days I say, well, I think he's kind of frustrated at me. He's kind of angry. He's kind of distant. Like he's there, but, you know, it's kind of like this... uh, tolerating me. Right now, what does God feel towards you? And then write down the second one is just why. Why did you answer that first one? And what's so fascinating to me is, you know, if you pay attention to your answer, almost all of our answers are about what? Our behavior. What I didn't do that I should have done or what I did that I should not have done. Where I was last night or who I was with, what I was smoking or what I was drinking. That's how our answers kind of run. 
Well, God's kind of ticked off with me because I go down the list. Are you a follower of Jesus? And if you're not, I'd invite you to be. It's simply acknowledging that you're a sinner and accepting his free gift of salvation and grace. But if you're a follower of Jesus, do you know what your answer theologically should be? When you say, what does God think about you? He's wild about me. He doesn't just love me. He likes me. Greg, I loved how you opened up the service. That's my heart. Is that you leave here not just knowing that he loves you, but he is your father. If you have your faith firmly rooted in the person of Jesus Christ, he is your father. Now, some of you, you I know some of you go, well, yeah, well, my dad was a jerk, and I've got a lot of pain with my dad. And there's some barriers and some brokenness there, and I get that. But this father is a perfect father. This father is a father that wants nothing but good for you. This father is a father that loves you so much, he's going to make sure to discipline you at times to help you get to where he knows you can be and all the potential that lies inside of you. This father is a father that when you're alone and you're hurting and you're aching and you're lost and you're confused, he is there with you. This father is not someone who lives in all the black and whites of Christianity, but lives in the mess and the brokenness of day in and day out. It's okay not to be okay with this father. When the center of the bullseye is simply rooted in I'm forgiven, I'm a child of God because of his grace and his mercy and my faith in the person of Jesus Christ. That is what sets Christianity apart from all other religions. And my prayer is that that is at the center of your heart. If it's not, I'll be up here after the service. Greg is here. I know there's other leaders here. Grab the person you came with. If you got invited by someone, they likely grab and understand this too. Talk to them. Have lunch with them this week. Sit down and don't take, let another day go by without kind of getting this squared away in your heart. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for this opportunity to be here with them. God, I pray that they were encouraged this morning. God, I see so much love flow out of this church in the two weeks that I've been in the role at the factory. Thank you for that. God, so I know in a lot of ways, many people here kind of get this message. I can, I can see it. I see the way it lives out. God, I know there's a lot of us here that struggle deeply with this message. God, I pray, my simple prayer is right now that we can be people that can sing the song that David sang. God, if we, our faith and trust is in the person of Jesus Christ, we can say we are clean in your sight. You love us, you like us, you're wild about us. You enjoy us. God, would that set in on our hearts, every person here? And God, if anyone is here right now that is brand new to Christianity, maybe they got invited by a friend, or maybe they've been burned by the church somewhere in their history, or there's hurt, or there's, there's confusion around all this, God, I pray right now, in the quietness of this moment, they would sense your presence. God, you love them. May they know that. May they feel that. They're made in your image. God, you've been, you've been, for all of time, had them in mind. The scriptures teach us that. God, would they feel that? And God, would they take a step towards you? It's a step unlike any other step. It's scary, God. Right now, would they just say, you know what? I can't do this on my own. I'm broken. I'm a sinner. 
God, I'm going to turn my life over to you and let you do the work. I'm going to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. God, thanks again for this church. God, as we close in song now, would you cement this message of grace in our heart? In Jesus' name.